Every generation has a story and point of view. Come join the conversation at the XYZ Experiment. Welcome to the XYZ Experiment podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have a special guest. And um, so Fiona and I are speaking with Professor Scott Ayton. Note the last name, uh, same as mine. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Scott. G'day. Very glad to be here. And uh, today we're actually recording right near the beach. So if you hear some background noise, um, that might be the sounds of a beach house. Um, And so, yeah, we're going to chat to Scott a little bit about what he does and um, how he does it. And um, we'll let him tell his story. But we ask all our guests at the start, what generation do you belong to? Well, technically, I'm a Gen Y. I was born in 1985, so I'm 38. Uh, but I've never really identified so much with my generation or any particular generation. I've, I've never really liked the music of my generation. I've more liked the music of uh, perhaps Gen X. Um, and I always dress um, in, in a way which is probably a little bit older than I am. In fact, I've always in my life felt that I was five years older than I am. Um, and so I've yeah, uh, I've never really identified so much with my generation. Uh, is that even from a younger age? Like you always felt that way, even as a child and things like that? Uh, maybe not so much as a child, but um, as I was uh, adolescence and into early adulthood, um, I, I just felt older than I was. Yeah. Uh, like I got married very young. I got married at 21. Um, and I really just wanted to... Uh, progress as fast as I could okay. and just be older than I, what, what I was. I was impatient yeah. with being young and I didn't really have the same youth as a lot of people would have. Yeah. I love that, impatient being young. That's yeah. just great. Because you even think about being a professor, mm. you know, at your age already, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is young. Yeah. Um, it is young to be a professor, um, and it, but it feels normal to me. Um, yeah. So I've... I've uh, even a little bit impatient with that so I just want to be in a more advanced stage than I currently am I feel that um, I've always said I'm going to peak when I'm 50 um, and so I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of like trying to accelerate towards that um, and I've always felt being older was being was better, um, better and I'm just looking forward to that stage of my life so Dash, you can't really ask that question about what is Gen Y about you because he doesn't feel Gen no, Y. No, he doesn't. So tell us a little bit about yourself then, like how you're out of your generation. You already said that you like the music of the Gen Xs and the, the dressing. Is there anything sort of Gen Y millennial about you at all, do you think? Uh, I think in general, I never like to be in vogue. Um, so I never <laughs> like to be with the cool kids or uh, doing things which were... Uh, I guess fashionable, fashionable. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of resist that um, and so I'm kind of anti-identifying with the, the the generation that I'm that I'm in and I think that type of little rebellion probably puts me outside of um, uh, identifying with the generation and I guess if I can share as a Gen Y like some of the th- reflections like even when we first got married one of the things that struck me about you was like in the morning you would want to read all of the newspapers before you started your day. Still do. Still does. That's what I do. Mm. Yeah. Obsessed even as a child. I don't think millennials um, are usually like that. And it took you ages to get onto things like Twitter 
or social media, like resisted that for ages. Um, and then you kind of got onto Twitter now X and now Twitter now X has died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic me. I'm uh, on trend about five years too late. <laughs> I have to get them onto like reels or something. Yeah, like. I, know. I don't think you're going to be on TikTok <laughs> anytime an soon. No. Um, and so I do think there's those types of characteristics that are pro- quite prominent for yeah. you. Where yeah. do you sit in your family? Are you like oldest, youngest? Where I'm a middle sit? child. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and so I've got an older brother and a younger sister. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us so that our listeners get a bit of an idea of who you are? Who I am? Well, um, I'm born and raised in Melbourne, Australia, in the uh, eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I uh, went to university at Monash to do my undergraduate um, in neuroscience and then did a PhD at the University of Melbourne and I've been working at um, on that campus ever since. So for the last, oh, I don't know, now 17 years or so. Mm. What, what is neuroscience? What exactly is that? Still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I love neuroscience because it's such a vague term. Yeah. Um, it can be anything. Because I just so, think brain. Does it mean brain? Yeah, but this, uh, I'll, when you think about brain, you can think about the cells of the brain. You can think about physiology. You can think about imaging. You can think about biochemistry. You yeah. can think about signaling. You can think about drugs. There's so many aspects to neuroscience. Um, that's what I love about it. It's mm. so broad and so undefined. And um, that's just something I find really attractive. I can see why someone goes into dentistry or medicine. How do you go into neuroscience? Like what, make, what attracts you to that? Wow. Um, I don't know. I didn't have any any example in my life of anyone who's did science. Um, and so I didn't really know what that was. It took me a while to figure that out. Um, and it's an unusual career path, I would suggest, particularly, uh, maybe less now than what it was previously. Um, but I remember thinking, uh, my journey to this is when I was a young kid in grade five. And I remember um, thinking, like, let, let's say there's a correlation between two things, like ice cream eating and drowning. That's mm-hmm. a strong correlation. Uh, but this not ice cream eating doesn't cause drowning. This is caused by a third factor of warm weather, which yep. is related to both. Now, that's a silly example, but I was always very good at trying to understand the causal pathway of things. And so I said to myself in grade five, I want to be a person who can understand cause and effect. I didn't know that that's what science was or that's what a scientist would be, but I had that thought um, when, when I was uh, uh, in, in primary school. And I enjoyed science uh, throughout my schooling. Um, I, I, I didn't, I said I probably wouldn't excel at it, but I was, I was good at it and I enjoyed it. Uh, and then at the end of high school, uh, I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I, I had this other thought, which is I want to work with smart people. I really enjoy smart people. I, I'm not intimidated. I love um, intelligent and complex conversations and I just love the capability of highly intelligent people and so I thought neuroscience was a place where smart people would hang out so that's what gravitated to me towards that 
without really having a clear idea of what the pathway was beyond the course or what I was going to do with it. But that's something that I just wanted to explore and to be a part of. And then um, in undergraduate, I think a lot of people were there trying to get into medicine or another, um, you know, maybe dentistry or physiotherapy or something like that. And that never appealed to me. Um, and I think um, obviously these, uh, these jobs are hugely important in society. But to me, I, I felt that there was a bit limiting. I thought if I could be a doctor I'm, and, you know, I might see, I don't know, maybe 10 patients in a day, something like that. And over the course of my career, I could, I could contribute to the, um, the health of maybe thousands of people. But as a scientist, I could help millions of people mm-hmm. if I discover something. And so it just felt too small to do medicine. Now, I don't mean to dismiss doctors. I think they play a hugely important role. It's just not me. Yeah. Um, and I, it's just not something I think I'd be good at and something that I would um, be, be satisfied doing. So I, I felt that I, I wanted to do something more, uh, more undefined, uh, more uh, exploratory, and um, science was just very appealing to me to do that. I think one of, like, just to build on the um, analogy, I guess, of practicing something like medicine versus working in medical science, Often when you're practicing medicine, and let me know if you resonate with this as someone who's also a scientist, I guess, or researcher, you are following protocols and um, guidelines and they're often actually set by researchers or, um, or science. And so would you say that maybe you didn't necessarily want to be the person following a protocol, but maybe discovering? Exactly. I feel that anyone can follow a protocol. <laughs> That's, again, being dismissive. Um, and I don't mean to be that because it is very challenging to be a doctor. But it's this thought that I have in my head is that uh, I want to make the guideline. Yeah. I don't want to follow the guideline. I'm not very good at following guidelines, I would say. Which uh, makes you a good scientist, to be fair. Because uh, I want to break the rules. Because uh, you want to write the handbooks. Yeah, I, I yeah. want to find a patient and see how they're an exception and then see how that can change the rule. Yeah. I'm less interested in actually helping the patient. Um, and, <laughs> no, no, I get it. And yeah. it's, it's just I'm, I don't think I'm very well suited to serving an individual patient. Um, I... It's just not where, how my mind works. I'm, I would be using that patient as a data point to serve something else. Yeah. I've never thought about it like that before. It's, it's, it's incredible to think about the people behind the scenes that mm. allow these people to do their job. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and give them that. Yeah, it's incredible. And so for a lot of people, even that decision what to study at university, how did you decide that degree? Well, as, as I mentioned, um, I just had this thought. I want to. I want to um, work with smart people. Um, I had done. Uh, I, I was really gravitated towards science. These were my favourite subjects. I when I did psycho- I did psychology in year eleven, and we did um, brain anatomy, and I just loved that. Now, 
I've come to understand that, that was just anatomy. Um, <laughs> and so if I had done anatomy of anything, I would have loved it. And it just so happened that we got to do an introduction into brain anatomy and psychology. And I was like, okay, well, I want to pursue this more. And, and, and to do neuroscience seemed a logical extension to that. Mm. And after your undergraduate, what was your pathway from there? Uh, I moved from uh, Monash to uh, the University of Melbourne um, and I did a PhD and um, that was that was great. I, I became interested in undergraduate uh, about Parkinson's disease uh, and just to take a step back there, I was thinking, because um, generally it's a biomedical science, neuroscience degree. And I was thinking, what, what do I want to pursue in my career? And I thought, you know, there's been huge inroads in cancer. There's been huge inroads in cardiovascular health. But very little has been done in neurodegeneration. And neurodegeneration is diseases like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, motor neuron disease. Um, and so I was like, this is going to be the next wave. This is where the discovery is going to be made, and I want to be catching that wave. Um, and I want to be part of these new big discoveries that are going to be in this space, which is basically huge diseases of our society that we've made very little progress in. Now, as it's turned out in the 17 years since I've completed my undergraduate degree, is that we've still made very little progress in neurodegeneration, and we've had a couple of different revolutions in cancer, and uh, so I, I, that was a that was a bad choice. You reckon? Well, I, I don't know. I, I can think. I'm, I'm jealous of some of my colleagues in uh, in cancer immunology, which didn't exist when I was an undergraduate uh, student, but has now completely shaped the field and. Uh, these things can move very quickly and you want to be part of the biggest discoveries in medicine and that's an example unfortunately we haven't made the similar progress and that we can still always craft the narrative that this is before us and you know we always uh, the reason i'm doing it is because i believe that we can be part of that but still impatient i want to see this done earlier than uh, what it is you're still young. I'm still young. <laughs> You've got years ahead of you for that. I want to come back to that, why you chose that. And uh, I just want to be corrected if this is right or wrong. One of my feelings is the reason why those diseases have been ignored is because they were diseases of older people or that our population didn't used to live to an age that those diseases came out. I'm thinking like Parkinson's disease and that. Is that actually true? Uh, in part, it's, it's quite true. Uh, if you look at the stats for uh, Alzheimer's disease and dementia, uh, if you look a generation ago, um, maybe in the 1970s, it wasn't in the top 10 causes of yeah. death. And yeah. now it's the second leading cause of death in Australia and number one for women. Yeah. So it's rapidly changed. And that's because of the ageing population we're getting. We can live longer? Primarily, yeah. yeah. People, uh, you know, and a, a big effect is not smoking, uh, less smoking. Yeah. So um, people aren't dying of heart disease yeah. and cancer yeah. as much as to. they used to. Yeah. And so uh, they live to an older age yeah. where they get... Um, so these diseases are now coming out, you know. Yeah. Can I ask another question around that? Does the money or people care as much about the older people? You know, or do they go, well, they're in their late 70s, you know? I think that that's been a big factor historically um, because people say, oh, you've got to die of something. And I understand that. Uh, but I think the, as we've realised how much 
um, diseases like neurodegeneration and, and dementia, how prevalent they are and yeah. how much they cost our society yeah. by having to look after people in uh, residential aged care and the, the medical cost of, of, of um, dealing with dementia is so huge in our society that I think the priority has changed um, because of that. But that's only been recent. Yeah. And also, I think there's a huge number of uh, essentially baby boomers who are seeing um, their, uh, their parents now having dementia and even um, some baby boomers are, uh, are um, being diagnosed with dementia now. And this is a large group of people and they're seeing the devastation of that and um, there's a lot of fear. And yeah. so that also has caused a priority shift because people realize that this is something that is, uh, you know, it's, it's a disease that I would most fear. Um, and it's, it's a shocking disease and it's so prevalent in our society and it costs us so much. Mm. And I think even, you know, what is considered a disease versus what is considered part of normal ageing mm. and some of the symptoms or the... Um, I guess, experience of Alzheimer's disease, dementia is, oh, that's just part of getting old. And so then as soon as people started to appreciate, no, this isn't actually. And so the science helped people understand this isn't just part of getting old. This is a disease process. It becomes easier then to advocate for research and funding to then go to these areas. That's very true. When I first started the field, um, there was not... It wasn't established that um, it was thought that dementia was almost inevitable or there were people who thought that it was inevitable and it's just a part of old age. Uh, but now we know that that's, that's not correct. Not the case. Um, and that people, uh, it is a disease. And uh, the good news about that, if it is a disease, it can be treated. Like there's been so many diseases in the past that we thought were impossible to treat. Um, and then someone figured it out. Mm. And now they are possible to treat and it's completely changed um, uh, the, the prospect of, of, of pa uh, patients with this disease. I think of so many, even in the recent examples, I think of MS. Um, with, you know, when I joined the field, there was... One drug. One drug, uh, essentially. One drug. And it was not very good, um, essentially. And you would still see a lot of MS patients... Uh, you know, within 10 years, they'd be in a wheelchair. That would be a common scenario. But now we've got, you know, about a dozen drugs and they're much, much better. And you, the, the prospects of people with MS are so much better than what they were uh, only maybe 10, 15 years ago. So things can change rapidly. And uh, I believe that we could see this for the neurodegenerative diseases as well. Uh, we've made some inroads. There's, there's a drug that was approved uh, just last year, 2023, um, in America, and that's scheduled to be examined and potentially approved in Australia for this year. It has a minor effect, I would suggest, um, but it's, it's an it's a inroad um, to potential uh, new treatments into the future. I, I've just had a paradigm shift there. I've never thought of Alzheimer's and that as a disease. I've always just thought it as an inevitable, like you yeah. were saying. I've just never... Can I ask, is it appropriate to ask, well, how do you treat that disease? Like, if you're a normal person, what do you, what do, you do to increase your chances of not developing that sort of disease? Well, uh, what we know, we, we look at risk factors, and the strongest risk factors are things like... Um, high blood pressure, 
yeah. in high blood pressure in the middle age. Yeah. So, um, you know, in your 40s, we understand now that Alzheimer's disease begins um, in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. It's, that's where its genesis begins. Um, and risk factors associated with your heart are the biggest predictors of um, later life dementia. Uh, but also things like uh, having brain uh, reserve, which is uh, basically uh, having more education, having more um, stimulating uh, job in terms of um, uh, mind stimulation. Mm-hmm. Social uh, connection. Social connection. Yeah. Uh, but that's uh, over decades. Yes. Uh, yes. It's not like a short thing. Um, and I think there's poor evidence that things like doing Sudoku or anything like that <laughs> is is uh, is really challenging to the brain. You've just broken Fiona's heart because she loves Sudoku. <laughs> but I, I don't do that for my brain health. <laughs> I, I do my dentistry for that. <laughs> do things with, with Sudoku. And challenge myself with new stuff. <laughs> It, it is it is complex, but once you've discovered the rules of uh, Sudoku, then it's you're just following. Yeah, you're following a pattern. You're following a pattern. It's like solving a Rubik's cube. Once yeah. you know how to do it, you've done it. Yeah. But that's why social interactions are much better for the brain because the you, you you never really discover the pattern of people. You can do this to a certain extent, but it's always complex navigating uh, personal relationships, um, and that's a better way of keeping your mind engaged. Now, if you enjoy Sudoku, that's that's fine, but it's it's not a uh, it's not necessarily something that's going to improve brain health. I, I have this saying that um, I like it, it's about people who sit on the couch and just watch TV all the time, mm. and they're saying most people are dead and they just don't realise it yet mm. because they're not stimulating themselves yeah. all the time. That's almost what you're saying, yeah. you know. Learn something new all the time, like. Yep. Yep. And but to be honest, I think that. Um, these aren't necessarily going to stop you from getting dementia. Yeah. This will increase reserve yeah. and this will uh, maybe delay the time you get dementia or make you uh, allow you to cope a little bit better yeah. um, when, when dementia does arise. So uh, unfortunately, it is a, biolog- a mysterious biological process that we don't understand yeah. uh, that is driving this disease. And there are things that may delay the onset um, or you know, help you to function better, but it's not going to stop you from getting the disease at this point. Can I? I just want to give a little personal anecdote with this, and um, I just want an opinion on it. So my mother's seventy-eight, right? Very good health and good brain, and um, and she says to me recently, "I'm um, going to keep the car we've got because it's probably the last car we're going to have." And then she goes, "And I just don't know how much longer I'm going to." drive and she drives fine and I was saying to her you are absolutely going to keep driving as Mm. long as you can mum because I think it's really important for your your health and your um, sociability and being able to get around and all that because I just thought the moment she stops driving things will go downhill yeah is that a crazy thing to think or yeah it's perhaps less about driving more about independence yeah so if she's not driving to go meet a friend or to do the shopping or to um go about her everyday life then she'll be sitting at home watching tv or something getting ready to (laughs) to die yeah yeah Yeah. so um being active i think is is really important it is important yeah Um, and it's one of the things that um people talk about being almost afraid to get a diagnosis of dementia is to be told you can't drive. Mm. And so I do think losing your independence and being able to do some of those things is what keeps quality of life and quality of life also then keeps you 
better when you are living with disease. Um, but it is also a good prevention thing. So I think as long as they're safe and not doing anything that will put themselves or others in harm, then... Yeah. But I do think um, the older generation can sometimes be a little bit more cautious when it comes to some of these things. And I think we just need to encourage them to keep doing things and being as active as possible for as long as possible. Yeah, I think um, things like exercise, like you're not necessarily going to be running marathons, marathons. When, you're, when you're at that age, but finding ways to still incorporate exercise into your life. Um, that's, we always need to find ways to adapt for the, the age that we, we live in. Um, so, but uh, still we need to caution um, that any of these steps that we can take to improve brain health and improve overall health won't stop the disease. No. Yeah. Um, and so there's a bit of a narrative going around that some people got dementia because they didn't necessarily have a, a healthy life their whole time. Um, and they, you know, they, they weren't doing things like running marathons and things like that. Um, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. uh, people, if they're going to get the disease, it's, it's likely that they're going to get the disease. And all of these factors are, are modifiers of it, but they're not determinants. And it's like what you were talking about before, some of the fact that we are now seeing dementia as being a leading cause of disease and death and disability is because we've had massive public health and medical wins in other diseases. And so, yeah, it was always there. It's just that sometimes people were going to have another disease first um, and it's hard to separate out all of these different diseases and the impacts that they will have on each other. But, you know, that's yeah. another by-the-by point. So even though, yes, you do work in dementia, you also cross over into other diseases because there's a lot of similarities, I guess, in terms of how things might impact on each other. Oh, definitely. And this is, I go back to the vague definition of neuroscience um, <laughs> and... I, I love, I don't like to be um, confined to just working on dementia. I work on a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and but dementia is one of the main things I work on um, and something I'm really passionate about. But they're interconnected with, dementia is interconnected with so many things. It's interconnected with dentistry. It's <laughs> interconnected with heart disease. It's, yeah. uh, there's uh, understandings about viruses and dementia. There's, basically name a field of medicine you can connect it to dementia i've got a question about the brain itself um so i've been listening to lots of podcasts and reading lots of stuff and watching a lot of tiktok and there's a lot of stuff about longevity and mm. about living longer and you know there's a couple of people in america who are trying to extend their lifespan and all that but does the brain have a finite point like, can you live to 120 with your brain? You, you know what I mean? Like, there must be an expiry at some stage. Well, uh, we don't know a theory behind that. Um, there's no uh, fixed date, I would suggest. We do know that humans don't live beyond 120. That seems to be our current capacity. But maybe we could do interventions that would uh, lead people, uh, allow people to live beyond that. But what, what I can say is that we've seen a massive change in the average lifespan of individuals um, over the last century, mm. um, going from, you know, death, uh, average lifespan of 50s, 60s, and now into, into 80s. 
Um, and that's mostly due to re reduction in communicable disease and also um, not dying in childbirth, um, either the mother or the child, which are major causes of death. Now, so I, I do believe we can increase lifespan, but also the if I want to think of a field of medicine which has got so much pseudoscience and snake oil, it's longevity research. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's corrupted by all these people who are wanting to sell their latest supplement. Uh, some of them have got a, a, a morsel of evidence. Some of them have been looked at for lots of different things, but we don't have good evidence uh, about how we can use supplements to increase uh, lifespan. Uh, so I would be cautious of anyone who's parading um, uh, with supplements to increase lifespan, or say I've got a body of an 18-year-old. When uh, I don't, yeah, this is this is all anecdotal and uh, not not science. If science has established something which is uh, does increase longevity uh, and also health span, this would be promoted by um, medicine. Um, and so I would, I would encourage people to focus on what medicine is promoting and not what some guy on TikTok is promoting. Um, they are usually got an agenda behind it and usually selling uh, a product or even selling the, uh, the idea because they've believed it. But this isn't necessarily, this is not how science works. Psychologically, and I don't know if this is important with brain health and that, but I feel like I'm in my 50s now and I do things that my mum would never have done in her 50s. Like I'm still at the gym, I'm, you know, lifting weights, I'm still, I like to do marathon walks, I like to do all sorts of stuff. My mother was never doing that in the 50s and I always think, is that what keeps me younger as well? Like I'm a younger 50 than what my mum was and is that about, is that? Yeah, also you probably worked longer than your mother. No, no, she worked all the way through. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. it would also be common that um, the generation, uh, you know, the baby boomer generation, yeah. uh, the women would work less. Yes, uh, yes. Um, but maybe yeah. that's not the case for your mum. Uh, I would say it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, the biggest effect, I would say, is that um, our generation smoke less than, um, yes. uh, than baby boomers and before that, and that's a massive health determinant. Um, it's probably one of the cleanest and biggest, um, I would say, but also we, uh, you know, baby boomers, um, carried less weight than, uh, generations, um, that, uh, preceded, uh, went uh, after them. Um, and that's related to diet, availability of, uh, different, uh, you know, the, the cost of sugar was, it became much, much cheaper and, and fast food became a thing. So there are some factors that are, um, are benefiting us younger people and uh, some factors that benefit the baby boomers and older. Um, being more active and having uh, more AIDS, uh, uh, things that help, our, um, help us to be independent. Um, I'm thinking electronics and technology is so much more available now than what it was previously and cheaper. Uh, that it enables us to be more independent for longer. And we've got availability to gyms, whereas your mother probably, there were much fewer gyms. There's nothing oh. around there, and, and, nothing. And if there were gyms, they were for, you know, hardcore bodybuilders yeah. and not ones for people who are wanting to maintain fitness. So a lot has changed socially over the years um, and that has uh, 
led to, I think, some overall benefits for health, but also there are some challenges with regards to diet particularly. Uh, I suspect a lot of that's going to change with um, with drugs like uh, Wagovi Ozempic, um, which is having a massive effect on um, on on weight gain uh, or weight loss, I should say, and uh, that's going to change in a similar way that controlling blood pressure and controlling cholesterol has benefited prior generations. I think this is what we're going to see is going to massively change uh, the future of uh, people of our generation. Do you think there's a risk in the future? Because I think Gen Zs are fairly healthy, but I, like uh, there seems to be a lot of drug use compared to what the boomers had, you know, like recreational and things like that. Um, do, do you think that's going to have effect on brain health as people get older? Uh I couldn't tell you the stats around drug use. Uh, I would say perhaps anecdotally it's used more, particularly um, marijuana. Um, alcohol is used less. Yeah. Um, Gen Xs and baby boomers drank a lot more alcohol um, than the younger generations. Um, and the availability of drugs, I think, is, um, is more and the cost is less than what it used to be. Uh, we... Uh, we've got a understanding about how some common drugs uh, cause adverse effects to brain health, um, but then there are more and more synthetic drugs which, you know, have got unknown effects on long-term um, on brain health. So, um, but I couldn't tell you what proportion of society are exposed to this and to how frequently they use it. Um, so, I think that that's a... Uh, it's an unknown um, and whether this is going to relate to other um, neurological or psychological diseases into the future, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And I do think there's a complex interplay between um, mental health and drug taking and also then brain health. And I think the research is yet to be able to unpack that, but we do have like particular disease, uh, diseases, disciplines which that is their clinical role. Um, and so if you think about like psychiatry, often we'll look at the interplay between mental health and um, neurodegeneration as well. So it can be quite a, a challenging one to unpack. Um, but I'm curious in terms of then your science journey as to, be, as to what have been like some of your career highlights for you in science. Hmm. Well, uh, probably the, um, the biggest thread of my career has been related to a treatment I was trying to develop for Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. So I had this idea in undergraduate. It wasn't a particularly um, unique idea, um, but it was a little bit niche uh, of a way to how to treat Parkinson's disease. And I found a supervisor... Um, uh, to do my PhD in, in Parkinson's disease who had very similar ideas. Um, and so we worked on this and I, I tested a drug and some animal models and seemed to work. And uh, some colleagues in France uh, also had this same idea and then they uh, also did these similar experiments and um, they also did an early clinical trial and it worked out really well. And so they were pursuing a larger clinical trial and. Um, I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to compete with them and, you know, good luck to them. They've had a, a similar uh, idea to me and um, 
but I saw the opportunity to apply this to Alzheimer's disease. And um, so we did similar experiments and we got really encouraging results. And this uh, prompted us to do a clinical trial for Alzheimer's disease. And so one of the biggest things I've been working on is to do, to do this clinical trial. It's very difficult to get a drug to clinical trial um, from doing work in the lab to um, doing a clinical trial. And um, so it's, it's a lot involved and it, you get very few chances to do this. And so it was about, oh, I don't know, a 15 year journey or even longer to get to this point. And um, so this was, uh, this is a highlight to do this regardless of the result. Now, uh, end of 2022, we got the result of the, the major clinical trial. We got the result for Parkinson's disease in a large study. And we found out that it made patients much worse. Oh, no. And okay. um, now it, it's a little bit, a little bit complicated. Um, perhaps it wasn't they actually got much worse, but um, at least that's the headline. Oh. They got they got much worse, and and then uh, this year or 2023 now. Sorry, we're now 2024. Um, we finally unblinded the res uh, the trial for Alzheimer's disease that we conducted, and it made patients much worse. Oh. So it's a, it was a long journey to get to this stage and uh, a huge disappointment. Uh, but in one respect, it was a disappointment. In another respect, I have so much joy that we have got that result. I, mean, I feel for the patients, but from an academic point of view, uh, that taught us so much. Like, we, because it made patients worse, this is giving us a very clear indication of the chemistry of the brain and what's important for um, may perhaps preserving um, the brain. So uh, the result was negative and um, it, but it, it taught us new pathways forward. So I, I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity to get an answer. So much research um, is done in the lab and you go, oh, maybe this is going to work and you don't really get the opportunity to test it in clinical trial, and that's really where you get to know whether your theories are uh, accurate or not. Unfortunately, we have to test this in humans before we can actually know. And um, so I'm grateful that we've got a result. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not waiting around the next 15 years in the lab trying to figure out if, if my ideas are good or not. We've, oh. we've got it, and it was... Uh, we're showing that it has a big effect. It's just not in the way that we thought it was. And this has caused us to uh, find new avenues to be able to reverse this effect. In, in a curious way, if we know if we can accelerate the disease, we can also slow the disease. Um, and it's just tweaking it to go into the other direction, which hopefully will give us a beneficial result. But that's probably 15 years away now. <laughs> if I You're still go, young. Go on current trajectories. <laughs> Um, and I think it's really interesting your narrative and how you've kind of flipped what most people potentially would think of as a, a failure to be something that is opportunity and opening up new avenues of thought. And um, I know that you have a lot of Scott-isms in science and I'm wondering if you can share some of those and how they've come about. Oh, um, science is a, it's a psychological um, pursuit more than it is an academic <laughs> pursuit. I can't it, wait to hear these. <laughs> it's, 
you know, it's, it's, you have to go through a little bit of trauma to go through science because almost everything you do doesn't work. Uh, you're just stumbling in the darkness, just trying to hope to find the, the path. And it's, you've got to have a lot of resilience. Almost all the feedback you get is negative. It's extremely competitive career. And um, you've got, I've had to say things to myself to help me get me through. And your staff. And my staff. And students. So um, what I've come to understand is things like science is always a disaster until it's not. It always looks bad until you get to the result when you go, oh, it works. Right? You're stumbling all this time and then it, you know, it feels like this is going nowhere until you get the answer. And I say it's science is like making a sausage. You don't want to see how it gets done. Because <laughs> it's messy. You want to eat the yummy result. <laughs> it's messy. It's ugly. Um, but at the end, it's nicely packaged into <laughs> sausage that you put on the barbecue and goes down easily. Uh, but the, the behind that, it's hard fought and, yeah. um, and, and, and difficult. And it's not necessarily the perspective that you get um, maybe entering into the field, you think of, oh, you're going to get, you're going to do the work, you'll have a eureka moment and you'll get rewarded. Um, but most of the time it goes nowhere. You've put in, you do the extra hours, you work for months, you work for years. Uh, in the case of the clinical trial, work for 15 years and the result is negative. Yeah. And you can't control it. You've got to just allow it to uh, play out as it does and respect the data, respect the science. Um, and only if you keep doing that will you get to the truth. And it's hard fought, hard fought. And I remember you would come home sometimes um, at, when you were doing your PhD and you'd say, this was a bad week for science. Yeah, <laughs> I've had plenty of those. <laughs> uh, that was again a, a way of saying to myself that this work that I've put in, this, um, this effort, it hasn't worked out. It's a bad week for science. Um, but next week will be better. Um, yeah, Cause you learned something from it. Well, not always. Right. So, sometimes <laughs> experiments don't work out and, um, and you, it's not because the result didn't go the way you wanted it to. It's that you didn't get a result because somehow the experiments didn't work out. Mm. And so you can do a huge amount of work, um, all, and just something at, some little detail um, just corrupted the experiment so you can get no information from it. And that happens often. And so uh, it's, it can be punishing uh, to knowing that you've put in so much effort and you get nothing out of it. Um, but then there are also occasions where you do get the results that just pan out easily. Um, they're rare, but uh, you take them as big wins when that happens. Um, and so... Yeah, these are just sayings and attitudes that you that I try and bring in to know that this is bad. This didn't work out how I wanted to, um, but maybe next time it'll be better. And maybe next week it'll be better. And I've just got to keep thinking that. Otherwise, you why would you keep going? If you get stuck in that uh, in that negativity, you'll go nowhere. And so from listening to that, I guess, if you were to give advice for people who were wanting to pursue science and the characteristics or the personality traits that you think would help people, what would you say? 
If I was to give advice to people wanting to do science, I would say don't. <laughs> <laughs> but they're passionate and they want to solve a disease. I think, I think my advice to most people is don't. Um, <laughs> it, it, because they've got to really, really want to do it. Mm. Um, and so my advice is don't do it. And then if they come back and say, I really, really, really want to do this, I tell them don't do it. And if they come back and say they really, really want to do this, okay, all right, now, now we can talk. Uh, because it is, a, it is a career which carries a huge amount of uncertainty. And not just un- uncertainty in the day-to-day of your job, is your career is very uncertain at all times. And um, that means, you know, decisions, life decisions of having a family or where you're going to live. Most scientists, you know, will would go live in different cities and how are you going to do that with your partner? How are you going to do that with your kids? Um, and will you have a job next year? And if you don't work in, in your field, you, how do you, um, how do you do a different, you'd have to completely change careers essentially. Mm. Um, and the, the skills aren't, they are transferable, but not directly. Like I can't just go from, my lab at the University of Melbourne and then go somewhere else and, and start work there. So um, it's, it's one which carries a huge amount of uncertainty for your career. And it's highly competitive, highly competitive. There, I say that there are uh, uh, three times more AFL players in Australia than there are um, what we call fellows um, of, uh, awarded by the NHMRC. So it's, and that's really what you want to get. Um, as uh, within your career, but they're very, very hard to get. And so, and I, and I do think people don't necessarily appreciate how uncertain and how competitive, particularly in Australia, working in research and science is. So I didn't know that at all. Yeah. Now you're saying it, it's like, wow, that's big considerations. Yeah, it's it's certainly not for everybody, um, and it's. It's one where, as I said, it's a, it's a psychological pursuit. You've got to f- defeat your own demons to, um, to make advances. Um, you get criticised all the time. Um, like you submit papers, you submit grants, and you're, you put yourself up for criticism. Well, not yourself necessarily sometimes, but it's your ideas that get criticised. So you've got to disentangle your ideas from who you are. Um, and but you're always constantly judged um, because you need to keep presenting yourself as the leader and the biggest in the field and your ideas will be criticized and you've got to wear that people will not believe you there's uh, the pursuit of truth is just very very um, hard fought and combative and um, it's it's such a huge challenge because we value it so much. We value what the truth is, because when we can establish what truth is, that is so valuable. And when we, when we know, I don't just say that we've, we've got the truth, but we've established its truth is, is so valuable to humanity. Um, and so we need to ensure that what we've got is true. And it's very, very hard to do that. Um, but I also think that's the point of humanity. Mm. Uh, that is the best of humanity, is that we can engage our brains and discover 
what the universe is. And that's why I'm a scientist, because it is, I think, the purest form and of what it is to be human, and it's the purpose of to be human, is to comprehend and to discover and to establish what is this universe that we live in. So earlier you spoke about the amazing advancements that have had happened in multiple sclerosis and all of the treatments and stuff that have become available. And you wear two hats in terms of you are a scientist who works in neurodegeneration, of which MS is sort of classed in there. Um, and you are married to someone who is living with MS and just wondering how that has impacted you. Wow. I mean, it's, uh, your story is such an inspiration to me. Um, and when I've seen uh, how dramatic the effect of these drugs were to your life, um, and in our time, when you first were diagnosed, you had such little opportunity. There was one drug, and it was a terrible drug. Um, and then in a short time frame, you were exposed to several opportunities, several different drugs um, that altered the course of your life. And so I saw it change quickly, and I saw the big impact it has on you and that spurs me on to believe that this is what we can do for neurodegeneration. I mean, it's, in one sense, it's been a bleak journey for neurodegeneration. Uh, I've talked about my story of the drug, that, the drug trial failure, but there have been dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of drug trial failures in neurodegeneration. And, but I know the day we crack it, things can change quickly. Mm. And we just need to keep on digging, keep on digging until we find that vein of gold. And then when we find it, we will make dramatic inroads into uh, the lives of patients. Um, and given the, the, the impact of these diseases on our society in general, it's going to change our society um, mm. because we're going to have fewer people in aged care. Yeah. People are going to live more independently. And given the, the, the budget that we have to allocate to aged care, to, it's going to change things. Your story gives me uh, inspiration that there is a brighter future. We just need to crack it um, and we will do it. Mm. Like every disease that was once incurable until someone found it out, neurodegeneration, dementia, Parkinson's disease will be a treatable disease in the future um, and it's just up to up to researchers to figure out how to do that hi everyone it's dash thanks for taking the time to listen to the xyz experiment podcast and don't forget to leave a rating and a review if you've enjoyed our show and um, like what you're hearing tell all your friends and family and hit that subscribe button if you want to hear our updates and know when episodes drop, follow us on Instagram at the XYZ Experiment for all the latest updates and news. And our original music was composed and performed by the amazing Luke Champion.